you would have people who are already dead, who've been dead for some days, perhaps stuck between casks or barrels and couldn't be extracted. The stink, the stench, the sheer inhumanity of man on man. You had so many children, so many young children. The excavation of more than 300 skeletons on a British island brought archaeologists into direct contact for the first time with victims of 19th century slave runners. Pirates who carried on their trade long after the so-called abolition of slavery. To be literally face-to-face with the slave trade and its human consequences is so much different than just reading a book. And when you're confronted with trauma, diseases, it grips you. It's quite harrowing at times. You know, it can be very emotional. It's very rare in my archaeological career I've actually shed a tear. It was a moment of intense, as it were, grief. Until work began on clearing a construction road for an airport on St Helena, a thousand miles out in the South Atlantic, the horrors of those voyages were largely known from the stories of survivors. Africans were transported to the Americas in hundreds of thousands, but some slave ships were captured and their human cargoes put ashore on tiny, isolated St Helena. 5,000 of them are thought to be buried there in a rocky, narrow valley. Professor Mark Horton of the University of Bristol. This is something which is of, of, of universal importance. It's up there, you know, up there with Auschwitz and Treblinka as one of the memories of mankind, a memory that tells us about this appalling slave trade that happened in the 18th and 19th centuries. The lead archaeologist, Dr Andy Pearson, arrived on St Helena sceptical about the number of Africans claimed to have been buried in Rupert's Valley. But as he began digging in the stony ground and in the long disregarded records, he realised the scale of desperation the valley had witnessed. When a slave ship came in, maybe it would have only two or three slaves on it, but some of the biggest ones that were brought as prizes by the Royal Navy, they had upwards of 850 people on board. And within that cargo, what the slave traders would have assumed to be human cattle or taken them to be human cattle, you would have people who've been dead for some days, perhaps stuck between casks or barrels and couldn't be extracted. You had people who were dying. And one of the things that comes across in the narratives written by the people who ran these depots is that they couldn't tell living from dead. And they talk about not being able to recognise these people as humans at all. But one of them used the term a species of human ape that I'd never seen before. And they talk then about unloading them from the ship as human bales and putting them onto boats and rowing them ashore. So I think it's impossible from this distance in time to really articulate what it was like, but it must, you know, in short, it must have been hell on earth. St Helena was essential to the Royal Navy's West Africa squadron in its perpetual race to capture as many slave ships as possible. From 1840 up until the final extinction of the slave trade, St Helena received more captured slave vessels, took in more liberated slaves than anywhere else in the British Atlantic. And because of where the slave ships were being captured, it really was the only place that was feasible to sail them to, to explain. On the West African coast, if you're in the Congo, the central area, say Congo, Angola, you can reach St Helena within seven days without actually having to change tack on a sailing vessel. 
that is crucial because the slaves are in such poor conditions that you have to get them unloaded from the ship absolutely as quickly as possible. Most of them were probably already dead, frankly, when they'd been unloaded from the ships. And, of course, one must remember the 19th century was a period in which the slave trade was at its most depraved. There was no regulation. People were literally slave running. They were trying to escape the ships. So with that comes the most appalling conditions, the stink, the stench. The sheer inhumanity of man on man is just extraordinary. And the fact that people could survive through that, to my mind, just defies modern imagination. St Helena, an island just ten miles by six, with a lush heartland but a barren exterior, was simply not equipped to cope with repeated waves of desperately ill people, sometimes arriving in their hundreds. Smallpox and dysentery claimed many. The first depot for liberated Africans was in Lemon Valley, now a popular place among St. Linians for days out. Accommodation was limited, and in 1841, two captured ships were being used as quarantine hulks. A Lieutenant Wilcox refused to allow his boat and exhausted men to be used to haul the dead out to sea any longer. So a new depot was established. Rupert's Valley was easier to provision... The Africans were housed in tents made from ship's sails, badly constructed, badly ventilated, and as the decades rolled on, badly neglected. In the words of Andrew Gurr, the island's governor at the time of the excavations, this narrow valley channelled relief and horror at the same time. Dr Pearson again. Within St Helena itself, Rupert's Valley is very much a world apart. It's maybe in a direct line, maybe only 300 metres from Jamestown and the James Valley and and then this very elegant Georgian settlement. But Rupert's Valley, it's arid, it's windy, it lacks any kind of shade. It it really, as a place for a a reception depot and what we might think of in modern terms as a refugee camp on a massive scale, it's very, very poorly suited. It was no place for the sick and many died. In the burial grounds up the valley, there was little soil to receive the dead, as the archaeologists were to discover when they excavated part of the site. You'd describe bodies being piled on top of each other. It's not really a cemetery. At best, you'd call it an institutional graveyard. At worst, it's disposal. In St Helena, in Rupert's Valley particularly, it's extremely hot. You have corpses which are already in very bad condition. The people running the depot simply had to get the bodies underground as quickly as possible. They tried burying at sea. That didn't work. The corpses washed up onto the shore... Burning isn't really a a viable option because it's actually surprisingly hard to burn a human body and Centralina is not well blessed with timber. So, yes, they had to bury and they had to do it quickly. The sailors tried to do burials at sea and it didn't work and the islanders weren't happy. Tell us about that. Well, in the correspondence, I mean, not only do we have the official numbers and censuses and that kind of thing, but on St. Helena's archive, which I would say is a discovery in its own right... There is all of the correspondence from the local people, not only running the depot, but also those just kind of tangentially affected. And one group are the fishermen, and they get a petition together to the governor to say, we're fishing and we're catching fish which have been feeding on human corpses. I mean, this is, I think, one of the interesting things I find about abolition is not the great political ideals, but actually how it affected ordinary people across the whole Atlantic Rim. That, I think, is an untold story, which I hope is something that we'll take forward later. The scale of this was enormous. How many skeletons did you find? Well, we found 
325 what we'd call articulated skeletons, so essentially complete human bodies. And then within 10 discrete pits, we had, well, we haven't quantified it, but about probably the remains of another 100 people in pits of what we'd call disarticulated remains, basically kind of long bones and skulls, comminuted bones. Usually when you work on a skeletal collection, they tend to be sort of what is representative of a normal population. All of a sudden here you had so many children, so many young children. Anne-Sophie Whitkin, an osteologist with the large archaeological team, was responsible for analysing the remains as they were excavated. And the adults as well, they were in the prime, you're starting out in life really, you know, most of them were in their 20s and teenagers. At the launch of her book on the St Helena finds at Bristol University, Dr Whitkin told how she drew out the stories of the dead from their bones, working in what space could be found in Jamestown. The initial laboratory was in the local school for the assessment. For the next year then we went out, it was in a vacant building. What did you have to do? You look for preservation, dental diseases, you look for pathology on the bones themselves, you record things like stature. You're used to handling the remains of people who lived some time ago. Had you ever dealt with slaves before? No, you're absolutely right. I have analysed hundreds of skeletons before I did this project, many, many. And no, this collection of remains are unique. For me as well, it was a privilege and also actually quite emotional at times to be part of this project because even though you have to have professional detachment, nevertheless, because you know what these people went through and what they were part of, and when you're confronted with trauma, diseases, metabolic disorders, scurvy, rickets, and you understand where the reasons where they come from, It grips you, it's quite harrowing at times, you know, it it can be very emotional. Do you think this will stay with you for a long time? It will definitely stay with me for a long, long time, absolutely. There were, among all those finds, most people just put straight in the ground, a, a few with bits of striped blanket found, but there were four bodies that were treated rather more sensitively. Yes, of the 325, five actually were in coffins. One was an adolescent male... Why he is special or or single out, we don't know. But the four which are perhaps more significant are still on newborn babies. Now, there were only four of these found on the site, and we know because of the way that we dug it, they are the only four. And they are all interred in tiny wooden coffins, and often with Victorian funerary clothes and that kind of thing. So to take perhaps the most complex example, a stillborn child, it had coins over its eyes, it was dressed in a little lace bonnet with a coverlet over the top and a pillow and, slightly oddly, a single left shoe placed by its head. But all of these are Western and specifically actually Northwestern European burial traditions. But what singled it out was, in fact, underneath is an African-style bead mattress woven out of, I think it was about 5,000 glass beads. And that is a very African tradition. So what you're seeing in these interments seems to be some sort of fusion of culture between African and European. Whether the mother has any role, whether the Victorian influences are actually some kind of Christian imposition, you know, that that kind of mixing of African and European is going on in the depot. You have all sorts of African cultures from all over the continent. Some of those groups will have got on or had a tribal or ethnic affinity. Some of them might well have been at war. But in the depot, they all become merged into one kind of new culture, So it's this 
ongoing culture in flux that we're actually seeing in these burials. And added to that is the European influence. Professor Horton again. When I first saw this material, when it came to Bristol, it's very rare in my archaeological career I've actually shed a tear. It was a moment of intense grief. You know, you see, and I've worked with slave communities in East Africa and in the Caribbean, in West Africa, but to see those little shoes and those little bits of ribbon, those bracelets, those beads, those textiles, and you suddenly realise that that was people, you know, that, that was someone. And the millions that you see in slave trade statistics is kind of irrelevant. I suppose it's a bit like the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, you know, that somehow you need to humanise it all. And what Andy and his team have done in St Helena is humanise the slave trade to actually realise that there are victims and that you're looking at them in the face. They are people, and excavating a skeleton is, is quite complicated and you can get very absorbed in it. But I think what we found really quite wrenching is that perhaps you don't finish that skeleton on that given day. So you cover the grave, you go home, and you come back to it the next day and you uncover it. And you, you look at it and you think, yes, that, that's a five-year-old child. And that child was abducted in Africa and died probably ten days later. And when you've done that time and time again and you're able to match it against the records... It is a disturbing sight, and I think we've all walked away with a strong impression of the inhumanity of the slave trade, which I suspect none of us really had beforehand. I mean, to be literally face-to-face with the slave trade and its human consequences is so much different than just reading a book and looking at facts and figures. St. Helena's famous for Napoleon. Is that the right way round? Oh, no, 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 no. no. I mean, this particular story and Andy's and his team's work have really shown that really St Helena needs to be remembered for its role in the abolition of slave trade. And these poor people who were landed there and left to die in Rupert's Valley and their burials and the remains that they've left with us, which provides us with the material remains that should be forever, from humanity, a memory of what went on in those horrible years. In many ways, the archaeology is a secondary product of what essentially we hope is the dignified exhumation of burials to clear a route for the Hall Road for the airport. We dug the minimum that we could, and those bodies will be respectfully reinterred and memorialised. Yes, the archaeology is a chance to really get the story of the slave trade and abolition out there. It stems from a project where exhumation and reinterment was the primary aim. And I think, to be honest, many of the St. Helenians would probably see that as the better outcome than some kind of academic study. Infernal Traffic, the story of the excavation of the liberated African graveyard in Rupert's Valley by Andrew Pearson, Ben Jeffs, and sophie Whitkin and Helen Macquarie, is available from its publisher, the Council for British Archaeology. I'm Simon Pipe, and this podcast has been made for St Helena Online at www.stelenaonline.org.